Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3. Okay, last Monday, June 19th, uh, 2023, Jordan Peterson, familiar name, he interviewed uh, Vice President Mike Pence regarding his current run for President of the United States in 2024. And as you know, Mike Pence is running in opposition to Donald Trump, whom Pence served as Vice President for four years. And we know that there are disagreements between these two men about leadership and governance. We also know that Mike Pence is a committed Christian, where Donald Trump believes in a Jesus of his own understanding. And so many people are excited for the prospects of a Mike Pence presidency because of the amount of conservative Christianity that Mike Pence can bring to the White House and the light for Christ that he can be shining from the office of the President of the United States. My concern with Mike Pence is the quality of the light that he will shine for Christ as president. I truly wonder what brand of Christianity Mike Pence holds to, especially in light of a question he answered for Jordan Peterson last Monday. Peterson asked, quote, when you think about strategy to forestall the narcissistic progressive agenda, what sort of strategy do you have in mind that can be employed at the federal level? Pence said, quote, I strongly support efforts to prohibit gender transition, chemical or surgical treatment for children under the age of 18. To which we would all say, well, amen. That's a regular biblical moral position to take to defend children. It is not a bold position to take. It is a normal, stock, standard position. But then Mike Pence immediately got squishy on the issue of gender transition surgeries in general, and his fear of man kicked in, and he forgot all about the incredible value of the righteousness of God for a society with regard to human sexuality, and Mike Pence regrettably made this concession to the sexual revolutionaries, which tells us a lot about his Christianity. Mike Pence said effectively, I'm a no-go for transgender surgeries for kids, but in, he says, I'm libertarian enough to say, if you're an adult, live while you live. You know, I may not agree with the decisions you make, but we'll love you and love our neighbor as ourselves as my faith requires, right? Live and let live. But for our kids, absolutely no. We've got to take a strong stand. Brothers and sisters, this is both failed authority and failed responsibility. Someone please tell me, when are gender surgeries permissible? When do they honor God who created each one, male and female? Now, did Jesus say, live and let live? Can you chapter verse that one for me? Is, is that what Jesus wants? Shall men and women designed and made by God in His image go on practicing unrighteous sexual mutilation with the hearty approval and validation of the national leaders just because you happen to be over 18? Are you on board with squishy conservatism, which is ready and willing to exchange truth for votes? Are we actually going to elect a conservative president, conservative Christian, that is, whose leadership is so squishy that effectively his policies would amount to this, forcing men in the military to call their transgender admiral she when everyone knows that admiral is a he. Brothers and sisters, who among all the presidential candidates for 2024 has the leadership ability and personal integrity to restore our nation from the brink of total social, economic, and moral collapse. 
What man has the strength of character and resolve to see the total rebirth of America economically, politically, morally, socially? Where are our uncompromising, conservative political leaders? Is there anyone that exists? Our national leaders are no different, brothers and sisters, than a man named Nicodemus, who was a failure in authority and a failure in responsibility in his role as the premier teacher in Israel. We see him in John chapter 3, where you are now. Nicodemus is the premier salvation authority in Jerusalem in AD 30, the lead teacher of the Jews. You can imagine what a disappointment he was to actually saved people in Jerusalem at that time. And Nicodemus is the one leading the people to national destruction because of his personal rebellion to God. Nicodemus is compromised. He is himself a hypocrite, a pretender, because on the one hand, he claims to know God, but on the other hand, Nicodemus has never been born again. And as a result of his self-made plan of salvation based on human achievement and human merit, which is a synergistic salvation of works, Nicodemus and the Jewish ruling elites are extremely suspicious and frustrated by Jesus' first ministry appearance at Passover in AD 30, when zeal for his father's house consumed him. And according to John chapter 2, Jesus scourged the temple by running out the sellers of oxen and cattle along with their animals and overturning the tables of the money changers who had made Jesus' father's house a house of business for their own financial gain. Jesus' zeal, his preaching, his teaching, his signs were troubling very troubling, and they needed to be confronted by the Jewish religious authorities. And so the Jews sent in their man, Nicodemus, as we read in John chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said to him, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life." Jesus' words end here at John 3.15. From John 3.16 to 21, we are looking at the words of the Apostle John who gives a glorious reflection on the salvation content Jesus shares with Nicodemus in John 3.1 through 15. 
Several grammatical and lexical features of the text make this clear, including the fact that John regularly offers commentary in conjunction with narrating Jesus' life and ministry. We just saw this in John 2.17 and in John 2.21-25, 2, that additional commentary that John provides, ep-exegetical commentary. Not to mention, Jesus is nowhere understood to call Himself the only begotten Son. This is a term, however, that is very familiar to the Apostle John who uses it regularly. Now, I don't want to debate this point with you, that Jesus' words end at John 3.15. I have made that case and presented it over several weeks, and I've told you, it's not worthy of greater discussion. If you want to believe that the red letters go all the way through verse 21, you go right ahead and believe that. What is worthy of greater discussion is the debate among Christians about salvation and how it happens that spools right out of this text because it seems there's a divide between verse 15 and verse 16. This is the Calvinism-Arminianism debate, which seeks to answer the question, who saved you, God or you? Well, the answer to that question is clearly God. God alone saves sinful men. That's the whole force and focus of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus from chapter 1 or chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. God must rebirth you and give you faith so that you might believe in Him. Which begs the question, why do so many Christians embrace a man-centered salvation believing John 3.16 somehow highlights the free will of men, which is clearly an idea divorced from the context? And yet, the vast majority of Christians in our world today, they believe a false, man-centered salvation is presented in John 3.16, specifically at the familiar phrase, whosoever believes in Him. Overwhelmingly, overwhelming numbers of Christians take this phrase to mean that salvation is itself a choice that men make. They believe that men, on the strength of their own faith, accept Jesus into their hearts. And this failed understanding of salvation is totally worthy of debating and discussing all of our lives. In fact, well, the young men aren't here. I would tell those young men sitting right there, I would tell them this, you young men, that guy will work right there. You, young man, will be debating this point of soteriology right up until the rapture. This point is central to our faith. Every faithful generation of believers have had to present and defend the sovereignty of God in salvation because every wicked and sinful human heart does not want to believe the truth that salvation is not up to us because our faith, as it begins from our birth, opposes God, which means that salvation has to be a free gift of God's grace given by God's free will onto wicked sinners. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not simply jumping from unbelief into belief as if you have the ability to make that leap. Entrance into the kingdom of God is a leap that you can't make in your own strength and by your own supposed faith in God. You'd have more success trying to physically jump from one bank of the Spokane River over to the other than succeed in jumping in your sins off into the salvation that God supplies. Many figuratively try to make that leap. From sin to salvation in their own strength, in their own faith, and they radically fail. How many Christian friends do you know are deconstructing their faith even this morning on the golf course? Where the, the God-glorifying salvation here 
in John 3 causes us to understand that for those who love God, who are chosen, God says to us this with regard to the leaping into the salvation. He says, leave the leaping to me. Leave the leaping to me. At this point in our text, God has not blessed Nicodemus with salvation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows that Nicodemus is not born again. He's not saved. And I have to ask, do you think Jesus is being kind and polite with Nicodemus in this conversation? Is this friendly evangelism or is this frustrated rebuke? Would Mike Pence approve of Jesus' approach to Nicodemus? Because there is no amount of live and let live libertarianism in Jesus in this evangelism session, is there? Jesus' tone is aggressive. It's confrontational, unapologetic. Without question, this is evangelism, but it is not super warm and fuzzy, and nor is it compromised and squishy like the false salvation that is sold by most evangelical churches today. Because we would ask, where's the love, Jesus? Where's the love, man? John MacArthur says, ever since Adam's disobedience plunged the human race into sin, Satan has ceaselessly promoted the lie that people can come to God on their own terms. That lie, says MacArthur, embraced by all who follow the broad way that leads to destruction, is at the heart of every false religion. But the Bible is clear that unregenerate people cannot save themselves. King David says in Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Steve Lawson says, anytime, anywhere, anyone has ever been made right with God, it has always been by the inner working of the Holy Spirit who gives faith in Jesus Christ. That happens first. Brothers and sisters, salvation is the work of God alone, by grace alone, which has unquestionably not been given to Nicodemus at this point. On this night, Jesus shares three terms of salvation which highlight the exclusivity of eternal life. It is on this night Jesus clarifies three conditions of salvation which beget belief in spirit-driven rebirth. Now, these three conditions of salvation I have printed in your bulletin for you. You can follow along and see where we're at as you go through your notes with me there in the bulletin. Jesus does this, these he clarifies these three conditions of salvation. He does this by sharing first, the first of three terms of salvation. He shares the first one in verses one through three. He shares with Nicodemus the born-again formality. Sorry, Nicodemus, there's a formality with entering the kingdom of heaven. You must come by invitation only. Your good works can't make you born again. You must be born again, anothen, which means born from above. This results in maximum frustration and confusion on Nicodemus' part, which requires Jesus to respond second with the born-again fraternity in verses 4 through 9, the second of three terms of salvation, the born-again fraternity in verses 4 through 9, where we see that Jesus has always had in his mind a desire for a secret society that is housed right out there in the open. Maybe the parking lot's a little hard to get into, but it's right out there in the open. Here we are, the secret society for Jesus right in the open which screams this meeting, this gathering, God's elect, his, his congregation, his called, his chosen, the ecclesia. It screams of divine exclusivity, that he would save a few and that he wouldn't save all. Because flesh only gives birth to flesh, but the spirit must give second spiritual birth to men, and he does that. Jesus, God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, Calvinistic understanding of kingdom entrance is more than Nicodemus can bear. 
He doesn't like the idea of a fraternity to which he doesn't belong. It's frustrating to him because he's the guy who's been at the top of the fraternity of Jewish religious ruling elite for years. And now he's being told, no man, you're an outsider. And he doesn't like it. And so he asks his last five-word question, how can these things be? How can it be that I'm not on the inside, not part of the fraternity? In John chapter 3, verse 9, which brings us to the third of three terms of salvation, the born-again finality in verses 10 through 15, where Jesus ends the conversation with the man. It's here that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus' failure to understand salvation on God's terms. In chapter 3, or verse 10, Jesus reprimands and reproves Nicodemus' confusion about God's plan of salvation. Jesus is repulsed by the pride in Nicodemus' heart. He is so wicked and sinful, he had no problem, this man didn't, pretending to be a salvation expert in Jerusalem when he knew absolutely nothing about salvation at all. Even worse, he taught God's people synergism. He taught them that salvation would happen by performance. And he, Nicodemus, made himself the arbiter, the decider of the works to be performed before him, and he sat in judgment over those works of the people. Jesus has every right and reason to say to this man, excuse me, sir, How dare you misuse your God-given authority? How dare you mislead the people of God in a worthless, man-centered salvation that you concocted in your own sinful, wicked heart? How dare you enjoy the title of teacher of Israel while you are spiritually blind and you are full of pride? Jesus is obligated to rebuke Israel's premier salvation authority candidly and forcefully, and he does so here decisively and with extreme finality. We have here in the text of John 3, 10 through 15, the born-again finality spoken by the creator of the world, Jesus, to personally crush the pride right out of Nicodemus' heart. Jesus brings this conversation to a conclusion, but not after addressing two salvation stumbling blocks that squeeze the life out of human pride. In our text today, Jesus fires two affirmations of his own personal sovereignty which demand reverence for his eternal deity. So what two affirmations of sovereignty crush pride and demand reverence for Jesus? Well, we see in our text today, in verses 10 through 15, Jesus, from his sovereign position as creator of all things, Lord, Savior, Redeemer, from this position... Jesus affirms, number one, Nicodemus failed authority. Jesus has the ability to, number one, affirm Nicodemus failed authority. We see Nicodemus failed authority in verses 10 through 12. This is the first of two affirmations of Jesus' sovereignty. The second affirmation of Jesus' sovereignty is when Jesus affirms his own forever authority. So Jesus affirms first Nicodemus failed authority because Jesus is sovereign king and able to call Nicodemus out on his failed authority. Second then, Jesus affirms his own forever authority and the glory of that in verses 13 through 15. To make it through our text, I've more or less divided it up into three messages. And so today we're at the bridge. The first message I just worked on verse 10. And we, were, we did well enough to just get through Nicodemus' failed authority with Jesus' question of him. Today, we're going to look at part two, which is going to cover verses 11 and 12 as we continue looking at Nicodemus' failed authority. 
And then we'll cross over and we will come to Jesus affirming his own forever authority as we get to verses 13 through 15, and we'll end our time today looking at verse 13 exclusively. Last week, I began explaining to you that Nicodemus was a failed religious authority. We looked at the first of two affirmations of Jesus' sovereignty, the first being Nicodemus' failed authority in verses 10 through 12. Additionally, today, I want to be looking at Nicodemus' failed responsibility, which specifically comes up at verses 11 and 12. We saw last week Nicodemus' failed authority in his five-word question to Jesus in verse 9, and then powerfully in Jesus' stinging question in verse 10. And yet Jesus wasn't done reprimanding Israel's premier salvation authority. There is more to discuss regarding all of Nicodemus' failures because Nicodemus is, uh, in his unbelief, is a figurehead representative of the nation of Israel, and even, for that matter, he's a representative of all mankind. You can see this if you look at John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Go ahead and turn there. Where the apostle John captured the hostility and ignorance of men in the prologue of his gospel. John's whole point in the prologue is to shout out as loud as he possibly can, Jesus is God. So that when you read about the seven signs and the seven miracles that he will report in the following 20 chapters, that you will come to this place, the place of belief. In fact, John states the purpose of his whole gospel in John 20, 31, saying, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wants belief in Jesus because, sadly, no one believes, even among those who were supposed to believe. In Jerusalem, John reports in John 1, 10 and 11, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Jesus, and the world did not know Jesus. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Chief among his own were the religious authorities who ruled over his chosen people, his chosen nation, Israel. And chief among these men at this time was Nicodemus. Go ahead and turn back to John 3.11. Steve Lawson says of the failed authority of Nicodemus, Nicodemus' problem was not that he suffered from a lack of knowledge about the Bible. He knew enough about the Bible. That's not the problem. Lawson says, instead, Nicodemus suffered from a failure to believe what was written in the Bible. Failure to believe. He says, though he knew the letter of the law, he did not know the spirit of it. Though he instructed others, he himself had not been taught by God. It's always amazing to watch humanity and see the kind of leadership under which people submit themselves. Take, for instance, this past week when Ocean Gate Expedition's CEO, Stockton Rush, piloted a tour in the submersible Titan that took four passengers front row to the Titanic wreckage two miles under the surface of the ocean for a mere $250,000 per person. Now, who can imagine spending $250,000 for an eight-day vacation, not me, who can imagine wanting to be two miles under the surface of the ocean to see anything, not me, and who can imagine setting foot in a deep sea submersible that uses a Logitech F710 wireless video game remote control as the primary device for navigation. I'm a Navy guy. I'm not going on this vessel. <laughs> it seems that Stockton Rush was a leader 
diving by the seat of his pants, you might say, making big promises without the leadership needed to deliver them. His leadership failure led to the catastrophic implosion of the submersible Titan and the loss of five lives, which included two British billionaires. And you'd think with these British billionaires that their wealth coulda, woulda, shoulda protected them from bad leadership, but it didn't. Neither does our American wealth of knowledge and money help us to follow good leaders either. Look at American politics from the federal level to the state to the local levels. Our leaders are actively killing our country culturally, politically, morally, socially. The Heritage Foundation issued an annual report on American military readiness. The report, in, the report for 2023 this year is summarized as follows. In the aggregate, the United States military posture can only be rated as weak. Will Joe Biden heed the warning of the Heritage Foundation report? Or will he listen to the queer and gender-affirming admirals in our armed forces who are grossly consumed this month with forcing the sexual revolution onto our soldiers, sailors, and airmen? Our nation will not explode by attack from outside, brothers and sisters. Standing foreign militaries are not our greatest threat. Our greatest threats are internal domestic terrorists that go by some pretty fancy labels like BLM, LGBTQ, Planned Parenthood, Antifa, and others who are, giving, who are given operating space by the liberals among us. America will not explode. America will implode, just like the Titan submersible. The warning signs for the Titan submersible, the implosion of it, were all around. Just like America has the warning signs now of impending implosion. The website, Not The Bee, reported last week, David Lockridge was terminated from OceanGate's senior management, including the management CEO, Stockton Rush. He was, David Lockridge was terminated by Stockton Rush and others for issuing a scathing quality control report in which Lockridge detailed, quote, Numerous issues that posed serious safety concerns, which included Lockridge's worry that visible flaws in the carbon fiber supplied to OceanGate raised the risk of small flaws expanding into larger tears during pressure cycling. As the vehicle got deeper, the tears would grow bigger. OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush was given all the information he needed to present, prevent the disaster where he heard David Lockridge's concerns and presentation of the truth, Stockton Rush did not heed the warning of the truth. And where Stockton Rush listened to David Lockridge, he did not receive nor believe the truth that Lockridge was sharing. And at the same time, Stockton Rush was responsible to believe the truth that he was actively rejecting. He was responsible. You are in John 3.11, where we have, friends, the same scenario. We have the same exact scenario. Life and death hangs in the balance in John chapter 3. One man has correction and truth, and another man has his opinion and pride. Where Stockton Rush sold people the idea that he could lead them to see 
the depths of the ocean floor, Nicodemus sold people the idea that he could lead them into the heights of the kingdom of God. Both claims are pride-filled, but Nicodemus' failed claim of kingdom entrance is far worse and required rebuke from the Son of God directly. This is what we see at John 3.11, where Jesus presses further into his chastisement of Nicodemus, saying to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. I'm speaking from the knowledge of God. I'm speaking from experiences by God, and you do not accept what I have to say. For a third time in this conversation, we run into the double amen, truly, truly, which is Jesus' way of saying, with great certainty, this is the solemn truth. Pay attention to me, Nicodemus. The first two times Jesus used the double amen, he was highlighting Nicodemus' first failure, knowledge of salvation. In John 3, verses 3 through 10, Jesus was explaining monergistic, God-given salvation in contrast and in opposition to Nicodemus' synergistic, man-centered salvation. Nicodemus' first failure as a salvation authority was not knowing biblical soteriology, biblical salvation. And now, at this triple use by Jesus of the double amen, Jesus is confronting Nicodemus' second salvation authority failure. Failure to receive and believe truth. Failure to stand responsible for believing the words of Jesus in very much the same way that Adam and Eve didn't believe the words of God. The key Greek verb here is lombano, which means to take, to receive. It is translated accept. Nicodemus would not receive, take into his heart, or accept the salvation truth Jesus is presenting. I'm convinced this verb gets so many Christians confused with regard to salvation. So many people talk about salvation like it's a Hail Mary pass thrown by Jesus into humanity that will save all of those who go out of their way to see it, to jump for it, and to grasp it with their hands. Have you seen a Hail Mary pass at the end of a college football game when the team is down by four points and the, they need a touchdown, and so the only option is to get the ball all the way into the end zone with a massive throw from the quarterback from 50 yards away? Meanwhile, all the good Roman Catholic boys and girls at Notre Dame start grasping their rosary beads to pray to Mother Mary for a miracle catch from one of those wide receivers that they will tuck that salvation in, secure victory. Are you familiar with this terminology? Can I use this idea, this Hail Mary pass? Can you see the picture? Hail Mary salvation is a perfect match for the synergistic salvation in the Roman Catholic system, as well as with all Mormons, Jehovah's false witnesses, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, all the rest. The deity offers a works-based salvation. And your job then, friend, becomes to perform, catch, receive, work, be good. In fake, phony versions of Christianity, Jesus is the quarterback. Salvation is the football, 
And you and I are the receivers who go out of our way to catch the salvation Jesus has floated up into the air. I think far too often these people don't understand. You caught the ball out of bounds. It doesn't count. Notice it doesn't have to be a pass directed at you personally. It, it, this, this is not a salvation that is personal. This is a salvation that Jesus just heaves up. It's a salvation that you earn by going, jumping, seeing, getting the strength of your own ability. And the problem with Hail Mary, synergistic salvation, the problems with it are just multifaceted. Let me give you my top two greatest grievances with this Hail Mary salvation illustration. My first greatest grievance is, number one, Jesus' salvation is not floated up in the air to be pulled down by men as if, as if you merely need to believe in the salvation that He supplied, as if salvation is the prize and Jesus is the delivery boy. You, you see, friends, Jesus is the prize because Jesus is God and Jesus saves. Jesus' salvation is a pass targeted at specific individuals known by name who were predestined by God to have salvation thrown at them. Jesus' salvation is targeted, it's intentional, and it's personal. It's not just heaved up for you to go grasp. If you don't get your hands up to receive it, the, G the salvation that Jesus throws intentionally at you, it'll get stuck in your mask. He won't let it miss. He won't let it leave you. He doesn't float a passive salvation for the physically strong and intellectually smart to grasp. Rather, He targets those elected for salvation and unmistakably throws the ball at them when they are unready, unwilling, unable, and unsuspecting. To this you might say, well then, how can anyone catch Jesus' salvation? How is salvation received? Now, this is a great question. It brings me to my second greatest Grievance with Hail Mary salvation. Number two, I would tell you, men don't have the ability to catch Jesus' salvation. They don't. We're not born this way. We're born rebels and enemies. Men don't understand. They don't seek for God. They don't want salvation. Men are not interested in catching salvation. Men are out fishing, hunting, hoop-festing, and golfing on a day like today. Psalm 14 speaks about them. The hoop festers. No, don't tell them. <laughs> Genesis 6.5. Jeremiah 17.9. That speaks about golfers. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Romans 3, 10 through 18. They all scream, these passages all scream of your inability from birth to choose Jesus on your own terms. And as a result of man's total inability to catch Jesus' salvation, Jesus must help catch His salvation pass to you by sending His Holy Spirit into the hearts of men at the moment of impact. In a fraction of a second, not only does Jesus' salvation strike you because He chooses to throw it right at you, unmistakably, better still, you will catch His salvation pass because of the power of the Holy Spirit who consumes you from the inside. You'll ask still further, you'll ask me, why would Jesus throw a salvation pass to me at all that I can't catch? And yet you already, friend, should know the answer. Jesus glorifies himself by working through your weaknesses, 
through the fact that you are born helpless. In this way, all the glory for salvation goes to Jesus, and salvation then becomes something that we know to be secure, assured, certain, because it wasn't brought on by you and your beautiful catch. It was brought on by Him and His perfect throw. For these reasons, the picture of the Hail Mary pass is a picture of salvation failure. It's a perfect picture of Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholic salvation and Nicodemus' works-based salvation, which are both man-centered salvation and are not representative of the born-again salvation that Jesus is describing in John 3, 1 through 15 and in 16 through 21. Hail Mary's salvation relies on men having the ability to catch what is being thrown spiritually. And yet here in John 3.11, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you don't have the ability to catch. You won't catch. You won't receive my message of salvation. You don't accept the spiritual truth that I'm telling you. And at the same time, we've been told, you've been told, we've, we're, we all should understand we're all accountable and responsible for failure to believe because you love your unbelief. Men have been told by God. His Word tells us. Creation is screaming at you. Your conscience bears witness. And no one can escape the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this bears down with responsibility on every human soul to believe or die. God is not obligated to save anyone but save he must, and save he does, instantly. You might say, Pastor Oliver, if that's the case, then salvation is a whole lot for Jesus to make happen in a single moment in time. Certainly, Pastor Oliver, certainly I saw Jesus' salvation coming to me, right? Didn't I participate? Didn't I have a, a place in, in making this happen? How can Jesus decide, then throw, then get the Holy Spirit inside of me to help me catch a salvation that I could not see when it was thrown? How fast does Jesus' salvation happen? Friend, is this your concern? Turning your Bibles to Acts 13. Acts 13. And we'll go to verse 44. Let me give you a timing comparison that might help you understand how fast salvation can happen by arguing from a physical world tragedy to a spiritual world triumph. The air pressure inside of your car's tires right now in the parking lot is 35 PSI, give or take. When the submersible Titanic imploded, it was likely under two miles of water, which had the pressure of 400 atmospheres or the equivalent of 6,000 PSI of water pressure around it. Shipbuilder Eric Fusel says, any defect in the hull of the submersible could result in a near instantaneous implosion in less than 40 milliseconds. It's clear that the Titan did have a defect in the hull, which caused that 6,000 psi water to crush the vessel entirely in four one-hundredths of one second. In a split second, the pressure flash boiled and vaporized everything in the sub before scattering the remains in the deep. Professor, physics professor Aaron Bansell said the passengers probably wouldn't have any idea what happened. 
Bob Ballard, who helped find Titanic in 1985, told ABC News, quote, I don't think people can appreciate the amazing energy involved in the destructive process of an implosion. It just takes out and literally shreds everything. From this physical world tragedy, I want you to understand, there will be no recovery of any human remains from the implosion of the Titanic submersible. And arguing from the lesser to the greater, Jesus' salvation happens faster than four one-hundredths of one second, and there is zero trace of our old heart of stone, which is instantaneously cut out, destroyed, and forever removed by the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence inside of us. This is the spiritual world triumph of the new birth. Watch it happen. In real time, 2,000 years ago in Acts 13, 44, where you are now, as Luke reports, and the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now that's funny. And judge yourselves worthy of eternal life, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we now are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, those ones believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. On the one hand, brothers and sisters, we have the instantaneous spiritual world triumph of new birth and salvation of the Gentiles who were thrown the pass of salvation from Jesus at the mouth of the words of Paul. On the other hand, we have the hard-hearted Jewish authorities who will not accept and in fact reject God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And notice, both groups will be responsible before God in heaven forever for the words that they heard that day. Brothers and sisters, Nicodemus was not only the failed religious authority in the first century, he wasn't the only one which is a fact that Jesus would comment on while rebuking Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 11. You, whether you are an authority or not, all men will be held accountable for their failed responsibility to believe. All men are accountable to God because you bear His image and likeness to believe. Acts 17, 30. You are to repent. You are to believe in Jesus. Turn back in your Bibles to John three eleven. In John 3, Nicodemus is the figurehead representative for the nation of Israel. Jesus saw him that way in John 3.11. Jesus' comments reflect his desire to address a larger audience. In fact, the larger audience Nicodemus claimed to represent in John 3.2 when he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Now, Jesus hadn't lost sight of Nicodemus' affiliation with a larger group. And it's to this group that he drives his next comments. This larger group of unregenerate religious authorities 
Here at the end of their conversation, while specifically addressing Nicodemus' failure to receive and believe the truth, Jesus uses a plural you, which your English translation doesn't help draw out for you. That's y'all, right? That's not singular, that's plural. That's what's going on here in the text. When Jesus says, you do not accept our witness in 3.11, the you is plural, it's y'all. And with this comment, Jesus' indictment of religious failure is directed at all of those who are affiliated with Nicodemus and share his failed understanding of salvation. Just like the men who died on the Titan submersible, the truth was made available to all men, especially those religious authorities. They loved the benefit, though. They loved the benefits they were heaping and receiving of not believing in the truth. In the submersible, the benefit was, I get to see the ocean floor for dirt cheap. These men, Nicodemus and his buddies, their unbelief in Jesus and truth got them vast riches, respect, and authority in Jerusalem. And ultimately, the death of those in the Titan submersible proves that they were responsible for the truth that they rejected. You see, what's funny about science being owned by God is that science caught up with them. In as much as we know, God caught up with them. Once the hatch closed, they were sealed in their rejection of truth, in their unbelief, and their death was sealed as well. John MacArthur says, the Lord's use of the plural pronoun you indicates that his rebuke went beyond Nicodemus to include the nation of Israel, of which Nicodemus was a representative. And you see in our text, it's a glorious rebuke that goes to Nicodemus and to all who will listen, and it largely goes unheeded. It's also important to note at this point in the conversation, Jesus himself is using a plural we. William Hendrickson says, over against the we know of Nicodemus in 3.2, a knowledge produced by human reflection, the Lord places his own we know and knowledge resulting from close communion with Father in opposition at the end of this conversation. Nicodemus, you want to talk about we? Yeah, I know a few we's myself. Let me, let, let's, put this, let's put this this way. Let's have my we's confront your we and see whose we is more authority. It's my we. Jesus' use of the plural could pull in the thoughts of his disciples, particularly after their confession in John 1. We see in John 1, his disciples make some powerful confessions of faith about Jesus. However, the use of the perfect tense of the verb to know and also the verb to see, the perfect tense suggests that the information was collected in the past and has an ongoing effect today. The use of the perfect then seems to... It seems to to be that Jesus is speaking on behalf of long-time witnesses to the plan of God and salvation. So, is Jesus talking about here in the we? Is He talking about His disciples? Is He talking about His Father in heaven? Who's in the we that Jesus is using? This is not common for Jesus to do this. Steve Lawson captures this idea. He says, in the message of salvation, there is an unbroken continuity from the Old Testament prophets to John the Baptist to Jesus Himself. And that seems to capture, capture this for me. Either, either which way, you've got Jesus talking about we and testimony, testifying. And he's saying the message has been communicated from God. You are accountable and responsible to it. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to see that. It seems that Jesus is rightly frustrated and exasperated by Nicodemus and his fellow failed religious authorities because Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Old Testament prophets all successfully preached the gospel. 
Jesus says, we have spoken and we have testified and you all have gotten the very best from us, but you reject our report. What are we supposed to do? What, what else are we supposed to do? Y'all won't accept it. You won't receive it. You won't believe it. Y'all trust yourselves more than you trust the Father's messengers of truth. And for that, shame on you. And for that, ultimately, condemnation will come to you. You've been judged already, is the, is the understanding from John 3.18. Jesus lets Nicodemus know just how ridiculous his unbelief is, saying in verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And at this point, we begin to see further. Jesus is entirely frustrated with Nicodemus. And his reprimand has found its conclusion in this particular rebuke, this rebuke in the form of a question. Arguing here from the lesser to the greater, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you are not even a spiritual infant. You are definitively not a believer. You're an unbeliever. I've looked at your soul and heard your exasperated comments, and I'm telling you, I have, you, you have never been given second birth, not by me, not by the Holy Spirit. You are unequipped to know the basics about spiritual life. You know nothing about the entrance into the kingdom of God. Steve Lawson says regarding the earthly things of which Jesus spoke, he says on the face of it, the obvious candidate for earthly things is the new birth itself, the subject of Jesus' conversation so far. It is earthly in that it takes place here on earth, when people are born again. Lawson says in this rebuke presented as a question, he says, the Lord passed the divine judgment that Nicodemus was an unbeliever. John MacArthur says, Jesus shattered Nicodemus' self-righteousness. His shallow profession of faith in Jesus as a teacher sent from God in verse 2 was meaningless, as was his misconstrued understanding of salvation in verse 10. This means Nicodemus' whole life was a sham, a fraud, it was fictitious, it was make-believe, he was a pretender. And as a result, Nicodemus does not know God and is headed to hell where he stands in front of Jesus. This comment is intended from Jesus to break the man's heart of stone and to shatter all of his pride bound up in his authority. Brothers and sisters, how do we pull this into our own personal lives? What, what kind of application can we draw from this? Th this man's life is something for you to look at and marvel over because he knew more about the Bible than you. How many of you still need your pride shattered by Jesus? Are you in the same prideful condition and state that Nicodemus is? Do you need your pride shattered? How, how many of you have been told the earthly side of salvation that men must be born again spiritually by God, and you still don't believe that salvation is out of your hands? How many of you believe that with God, your good just has to outweigh your bad, like so many of our neighbors in this society? How many of you believe that God's choice of you is based on your performance, and that being that you first are the one to believe? How many of you believe that you are saved because mom and dad did such a great job of raising you, and you were baptized in the Catholic church at age one. How many of you struggle to understand the depth of your sinfulness and have always believed that you chose Jesus first? How many of you reject the fact that you are responsible for your failure to believe? How many of us here continue to think that salvation requires us to go in search of Jesus? 
If that's you, can I just ask you this very considerately, very politely? Friend, let me just ask you, just from the outset, who was lost, you or Jesus? Who is the one that needs to be found? Isn't that you? The human heart is full of salvation stumbling blocks because we truly believe that we are born better than spiritually dead, but we are not. And for this reason, we must study the Scriptures. We must fully understand and appreciate the born-again salvation that Jesus is here demanding Nicodemus to understand. We must understand the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. And if you're hearing those words for the first time in your church history and life, well, welcome to Community Bible Church. We talk about these things because they're important, which is effectively the same way the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, it's effectively the same as saying, do you understand the difference between your faith and the Roman Catholic faith in which you grew up? Do you know what makes the two different? Do you understand why the Reformation happened? You see, friends, if Roman Catholicism is the king of synergistic salvation systems like Budweiser is the king of beer, then Arminianism is the Bud Light in the equation, and we have every reason to spiritually boycott both of them. Brothers and sisters, do you know salvation? Do you know it is given by God through second spiritual birth? How can God give us second spiritual birth? How does He wash and cleanse the stains of our sins? Where do we get the righteousness to be in God's presence for all of eternity? Where do we get it? On what grounds, on what basis can God remove all that is sinful and defiled in us and allow His Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us? How can He do that? On what basis, on what authority? Where does the authority come from for anyone to be born again and reconciled to God? Now, if these are your questions, I have great news for you. Jesus gives the answer to these questions immediately following in our text. You see, it is here that we have come to the second point in our text, the second of two affirmations of Jesus' sovereignty that crush pride and demand reverence for Jesus. We saw first Nicodemus' failed authority. We saw first Jesus' sovereignty over Nicodemus, that he could call out the religious leader in Israel and rebuke him for his failed understanding of salvation with great finality in verses 10 through 12. But now we see that Jesus affirms his own forever authority. We come to the second of two affirmations of sovereignty. Jesus affirms his own forever authority in verses 13 through 15. And it's here we get a wonderful, powerful, glorious picture of what salvation is and how it happens and on what authority salvation can happen. We see the second of two affirmations of sovereignty here in our text. Jesus affirms his own forever authority in verses 13 through 15. After sovereignly affirming Nicodemus' failed authority in verses 10 through 12 and Nicodemus' failed responsibility, we now see Jesus' forever authority in verses 13 through 15. Jesus knows Nicodemus is in a bad place. Jesus, if you can think about this with me, because Jesus will do the same thing with you if he hasn't already. He will drive you to a deep, dark, cold, wet, broken place. He will drive you there on purpose so that He can break you. That's what He'll do. That's the way He works salvation. And He knows that He's taken Nicodemus to this place. Look at Jesus' questions. 
Look at the tone and the force of Jesus' reasoning with Nicodemus in this text in John 3, 1 through 15. Look at it and see, friends, see. Nicodemus is totally crushed. He's spiritually bankrupt. He's empty. And if the man has any sense of humility at all, he should recognize this about himself. Jesus knows this. Moreover, Jesus knows this. He knows that Nicodemus will one day reject the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and later will help to bury Jesus' body properly in a tomb provided by Joseph of Arimathea. And for that reason, where finality in this conversation is focused first on rebuke, Jesus' finality is first focused on rebuke, finality is not complete without a focus on restoration on how to make a relationship that is broken right with God. And Jesus is going to tell him how. It is here in our text that Jesus reveals three facts of rebirth required to restore a man to God. It is here in the text that Jesus unveils three essential concepts of salvation required for entrance into the kingdom of God. So what three facts of rebirth, what three essential concepts of salvation restore man to God and afford kingdom entrance? Pay attention. You see in verse 13, number one, the first of three essential concepts of salvation. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, verse 14, Jesus must die. And number three, verse 15, Jesus gives life. This is glory. This is power. This is the hallelujah moment of grace in this conversation. Jesus is God. Number one, the first of three essential concepts of salvation, Jesus gives number one in verse 13, Jesus is God, verse 14, Jesus must die, verse 15, Jesus gives life. Let's read then. The finality of finality together as we see the grace of Jesus for Nicodemus in this. Jesus shows Nicodemus all his spiritual cards, puts them on the table again. Jesus withholds nothing from Nicodemus, who is an enemy of Jesus at this point. Jesus breaks out the gospel on the most basic terms for the premier salvation authority in Israel, who is a failed spiritual authority. Please see and consider these three essential concepts of salvation as we read Jesus' parting comments to Nicodemus. With great finality, Jesus says in John 3.13, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that... Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Very clearly, we can see that in these words, Jesus is establishing his perfect claim to absolute and eternal spiritual authority. We see the incarnation, the crucifixion, and consummation in these three verses. We see Jesus' deity, Jesus' misery, and Jesus' crowning glory in these three verses. Eternal salvation for all of those who will believe in him is in this text. We don't have time in our day today to look at all of these three essential concepts of salvation in Jesus' final comments to Nicodemus, but we will be blessed today if we could just consider the first of these three, the first of three essential concepts of salvation. Number one, from verse 13, Jesus is God. That's what's being said by Jesus to Nicodemus as he brings finality to this conversation. I am God. Where do we see Jesus declare that He is God? We see it in verse 13 where He says, And no one has ascended into heaven, 
but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, this is very basic. Jesus is simply saying, I'm God. I'm the Son of God. This is Jesus' rendition of John 1.1, where the apostle John said at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. However, Jesus prefers the title Son of Man, which captures his incarnation and a host of Old Testament prophetic imagery. Son of Man is Jesus' earthly title. It's an earthy title. It's got man in it. And again, on an earthbound level, Nicodemus probably can't even understand that aspect of Jesus' earthiness in this title, but he should. Jesus is effectively saying, no earthbound person has left earth and grasped the glories of heaven except the man who came out of heaven down to earth, and that's me. It's the guy standing in front of you. Think about the claim itself, the truth claim. I mean, how bold does Jesus have to be at this point to say, no one has ascended into heaven? Excuse me? Have you been all around the world? Have you been to China? Have you been to the United States? Have you explored over there recently, Jesus? How, do you know, how can you make this bold claim? You turn in your Bibles to John 10, 22. John 10, 22. D.A. Carson paraphrases Jesus' words in John 3, 13 by saying, No one has ascended into heaven and remained there so as to be able to speak authoritatively about heavenly things, but only the one who has come down from heaven is equipped to speak about heavenly things. D.A. Carson says, Jesus can speak of heavenly things because heaven was his home in the first place. He is the one who came from heaven. He is the revelatory son of man. Jesus made this clear several times during his ministry. In one of my most favorite Calvinistic verses in the Bible, Matthew records, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, listen, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal the Father to that person. At the Last Supper in the upper room, Philip said to Jesus in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all so long, and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen my Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Often, friends, and openly, Jesus discussed his deity, that he is God. He is, his Father is God. He's from heaven. How blessed was Nicodemus in John 3.13 at the end of being crushed by Jesus to have Jesus declare to him personally, look, man, I'm God. I've been trying to tell this to you. You just won't believe me. You're in John 10 at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem where we read John 10, 24. John 10, 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, 
I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. And at that moment we can say, there it is. That's it. Do you see it? The Jews knew exactly who Jesus was and what he was saying. And they hated him for it. Jesus was not hiding his deity from men. He was proclaiming his deity. And we see it over and over again. Sinful men won't believe. They won't believe. Actually, Jesus said it best when he declared the exclusivity of the sheep and his flock by saying in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. To wrap up our time, would you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? Brothers and sisters, can you hear the grace of Jesus' voice as this text speaks? In John 10, 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice. Can you hear his voice? In John chapter 3, verse 13, can you hear his voice? Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I am God. Jesus' words of truth are grace to all who hear, which is why men are accountable for rejecting them. Additionally, we know saving grace has come to all men who hear the word or hear the grace of Jesus' voice, are transformed by his truth, and follow him. Those ones have the grace of God placed on them. He really does save. Nicodemus was graced by Jesus in John 3, 10 through 15. First, with rebuke in verses 10 to 12 to crush his pride. And second, when Jesus gave him the positive salvation presentation, which begins with this incredible declaration, I am God. John Calvin says of Jesus' declaration in John 3.13, Christ, who is in heaven, put on our flesh that by stretching out a brotherly hand to us, he might raise us to heaven along with himself. Graciously, our Savior took our flesh, which is so weak, and put it on himself. He veiled himself. He emptied himself. It was emptying by addition, putting on flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And at John 3.13, Jesus found a gracious way to declare this glorious truth to this man, Nicodemus. I am God, by saying to him, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Steve Lawson says, if Nicodemus is to know the way to heaven, he must listen to Jesus who came down from heaven to speak to him. You're in Philippians 2, where Paul presents Jesus' incarnation as the greatest act of humility ever known to man. Paul is exhorting the believers in Philippi to have the same mind of humility in themselves that exists in Jesus, especially at the point of Jesus' condescension to earth in human flesh into the form of a slave and ultimately into death on a cross at Calvary. We read in Philippians 2.5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a theme to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name that was above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the long version of Jesus' deity, misery, and crowning glory. Thirty years earlier, Nicodemus 
got this very same message from Jesus in John 3, 13, 14, and 15. Turn back in your Bibles to John 3, 18. The testimony of Jesus and the apostles was plain. Jesus is God. If you're going to know salvation, eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God, it starts here at this point. You must believe Jesus is God. You have been told. You have been warned. Spiritual authorities are accountable for what they teach about Jesus, and all men are responsible individually for what they believe about Jesus. The whole world has been told. They reject. They will not believe. And all who don't believe in their unbelief, they will be held accountable. You must, friend, understand right now, the God who made you has placed demands on your life, and the demands are simple. He tells you, repent and believe in Jesus. Do not think you will escape the judgment of God by getting into your personal, unbelieving, titan submersible and riding it to the depths of the ocean of your sin as if God is not watching you. Friend, Jesus is using this time in your life right now to call you out of darkness, out of the depth of your sin, into His marvelous light. And so I call you today to see the glory of salvation in Jesus. See the grace of Jesus for sinners at the cross. Know that Jesus happily saves His enemies. He saves all those appointed for eternal life. You're at John 3.18 where John issues a glorious truth, this very same one, paired with a grim warning saying, verse 18, the one believing in Him is not judged. That's eternal life. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Friends, you've been warned. You are responsible to know Jesus is God. The command on your life today is be believing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters. We pray for your word to impact our hearts, for you to crush our own pride, our own sinfulness, for you to bring us to the depth of this incredible realization that we are unable to save ourselves and that we do have this knowledge of a merciful Savior who's gracious, who can lead us in paths of righteousness, who can fire into our hearts a salvation that we never would have chosen, that we never wanted, and we would never accept. Send this salvation, Father, into all of the hearts of those in this room that we too might call others to repentance and faith in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.